Hello and welcome to this week's Bunker Roundtable with me, Andrew Harrison. In a special late night recording, Boris Johnson gets away with it. Or does he? The Prime Minister squeaks through with 211 votes of confidence to 148 against. Plus, is the war in Ukraine turning in Russia's favour? What should we in the West be doing to ensure that Putin doesn't prevail? And, as the Platinum Jubilee bunting comes down, what do we really value about Britain? Big shout out to everybody who's learning how to spell Pyrrhic. It's this week's Bunker. Welcome back to The Bunker. This is going to be a bit of a weird one because we've had to record it all out of sequence to cover the confidence vote. So see if you can spot the join. Also, before we start, a reminder on this exceptionally busy week in politics, our sibling podcast, Oh God, What Now? is live in Brighton on Wednesday night. There are some tickets still available at theoldmarket.com. Should be a big one. And if you're not in the southeastern sprawl, then it is being streamed on Zoom for Oh God, What Now? Patreon backers. Just search Oh God, What Now? Patreon to find out, sign up, and you can hear it. Until then, we've got a bunker to do. Later, we'll be saying hello to former Labour advisor and Times Radio host Aisha Hazarika. But with us from the start, it's journalist and author Marie Lacons. Hi, Marie. How are you doing? Hello. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Not bad. You don't sound out of breath. You've just come tearing down um, from Westminster to get to the microphone. The result has just come through. What has the vibe been like in the corridors of power today? Um, so the vibe was actually oddly subdued, I would say, um, in terms of, you know, so like the pubs were not especially full. Um, the terrace, I didn't actually go to the terrace myself, but I was told the terrace was not especially full. And again, you know, when you compare this, to, for example, you know, the Theresa May confidence vote or even like, even the sorts of, you know, smaller votes on Brexit where every pub within a mile of parliament is absolutely packed. That was not, that was not quite the vibe. And, and I don't know, I, I think it was that sense. So it kind of reminded me weirdly of the Labour leadership contest between Jeremy Corbyn and Owen Smith, of that kind of sense of basically whatever happens you know, there's no good outcome here. And that kind of felt the same. Well, I think, you know, that really the only good outcome possibly for anyone would have been a big, you know, a big victory for Boris Johnson. That would have been good for the Boris loyalists. But apart from that, you know, every other possible outcome for this vote would have been just quite bad for the Conservative Party. So as a result, I think, you know, it felt febrile, but I would say it did not feel quite as electric as it could have. And the summary that everybody rushing to the mic seems to have tr- be, be trying to get out, it's a contrast of government ministers saying, well, that's that dealt with then. We're moving on. The issue is is closed. And every single commentator saying, oh, no, it isn't. What did you think? Well, I think, you know, it, it comes back to a fundamental personality problem about Boris Johnson, which we saw even last week when it looked, you know, it, it was looking like increasingly like that the numbers were in for a confidence vote. Um, and every piece of briefing you saw from number 10 was like, eh, it's entirely fine. It's just a bit of hot air. You know, we don't care. We're just getting on with the job, et cetera, et cetera. Nothing's going to happen. You know, that, that is sort of weird kind of bravado. Um, and I think, you know, this is exactly what's happening tonight. And the problem is, you know, I think the people in number 10 and around number 10, it is the only tone they know to strike. You know, they, they have no idea how to do the okay, clearly there is a problem here, which we need to address, we will listen, even if you don't mean it, you know, it does feel like the sort of point where you have to say, we're going to listen to you, we're going to listen to your concerns, and we're going to try to build a kind of conservative leadership that will work for everyone. But clearly, that's not something they're capable of doing at all. So it now looks very weirdly dissonant, I suppose. What was your favourite intervention of the day? Was it uh, the Prime Minister's anti-corruption czar, John Penrose, resigning? because of what he described as a failure of leadership? Or was it Nadine Dorries wailing on Jeremy Hunt and basically saying if you'd been leading, you'd have handed the keys at number 10 to Corbyn? It was kind of, it was blood on the walls, really. 
Uh, it was. So I would say actually very specifically, I mean, I'm a big fan of Nadine Dorries anyway. Um, you know, make her chancellor, make her prime minister, you know, for all I care. Um, Are you sure so about I, that? I would say so. I really enjoyed her. So spending, you know, as we all saw the entire morning on Twitter, just being unbelievably, so, you know, like... Um, no, kind of like attacking Jeremy Hunt again and again, and then going on the television and saying, "Well, you know," and then kind of clearly trying to speak to the rebels and saying, "Well, you know, guys, as you know, people do not vote for divided parties." And it's like Nadine, do, do you remember what you were tweeting for like three hours mm. since the time morning? So, so I would say that was definitely my favourite part. I think of the day, just Nadine being like, "Yes, I am not a part of the civil war at all, apart from my fight with Jeremy Hunt, who I hate." Also with us is writer and editor Justin Quirk. Justin, just away before the vote, this had the feeling of a weirdly momentous weekend. We're going to be talking about the Jubilee later, but Johnson being booed on the steps. Let's kind of talk that it actually genuinely did tip the scales in the vote. What did you think when you saw it? It's always hard to tell which of these things will wash out in 24 hours. But I mean, I tweeted on Saturday that I thought that felt like the kind of moment that you'll see being replayed in documentaries about this period. And Mm. Nick Cohen called it Johnson's Ceausescu moment, which might not be too far off in the general direction of travel, if not, thankfully, the final morbid destination. Mm. I I thought exactly that. It's like you fatally misjudged your audience here. And the idea that various kind of outriders could pop up and go, oh, well, it's London Metropolitan Elite. These people were dressed in flags from head to toe. These are supposed to be the Metropolitan Remainers? I mean, that that was one of the things that really made it stand out. I mean, I thought, firstly, what jolted with it for me was because it was was so at odds with the rest of the weekend, which was Mm. exceptionally benign and marked by this sort of 2012 conviviality that I wasn't really expecting. So this sudden outburst of genuine spontaneous anger, which Mm. wasn't being dialed up by a sort of renter mob or, you know, exaggerated on social media was really quite something. And I think you could see in the live broadcast, it wrong footed people when it happened. And it's certainly Mm. wrong footed. I think Johnson by his sort of expression, but secondly, as you say, it came from what I think Johnson could be forgiven for reasonably having assumed was going to be a home crowd. Mm. You know, people who've been sat out to give good wishes to the queen whilst wearing, you know, plastic bowler hats and flags are not, you know, rent a mob who are going to turn up and, you know, throw milkshakes at people. Well, I saw something closely related to this, because I went to see Madness on the Thursday before uh, the Jubilee um, at Brockwell Park in South London. And, you know, Madness themselves are quite sort of liberal, wet lefties like me, but their fans really are, you know, quite a mixed bag. And Madness finished their set by playing the track Madness, they call it Madness, with a kind of, like a montage, a Cold War Steve-style montage of partying in number 10 and kind of party buses going back and forth and Johnson gurning. And the booing and the middle fingers and the Mm. flicking of the Vs was really surprising to me it's like you've lost on the one hand people who were uh you know union jack waistcoats in the tim brooke taylor style but you've also lost kind of southeast fred perry man that's the bit that the no confidence voters missed you know they may be looking at it from it from the state of things inside the commons but out in the country he really is quite detested but this is just once again a perfect example of how for a self-avowed historian Boris Johnson appears to have almost no sense of historical precedent. And one of the most timeless lessons is if you get to power by whipping up a mob and riding them into power, sooner or later, that mob will turn on you. And I thought this weekend, whether it was outside, you know, St. Paul's or at the Madness gig, that was, you know, Johnson's cabaret moment of, you know, do you still think you can control them? 
Marie, lots of people are pointing out that he's won by a smaller percentage than Theresa May did in a vote that supposedly completely uh, rendered her a lame duck and Reese Mogg was running around saying she has no alternative but to resign. Johnson has just done worse than her and those self-same people are saying we must draw a line, it's all over. What is this saying about the Conservative Party now? Well, so I think there's kind of two different things here. So the first one is, so the kind of anti-Boris, I think, take on this would be that you know, Boris has no shame and Theresa May did have a sense of shame. Ergo, these are different situations. I think the slightly more pro-Boris point would be to actually point out that, you know, Boris Johnson, in fairness, did win an absolutely huge majority for the Conservative Party, which uh, Theresa May did not have. And I think it is very, it is a very different situation, I think, to, you know, to to lose a confidence vote if you've got basically no majority to speak of and to lose one if you've got a massive sort of like stonking majority. But that being said, and I think, you know, and obviously I've just come from Westminster, I was talking to some people who said, well, you know, there's got to be the end for him. But then, you know, the conversation kind of moved on to, okay, well, what what, what is the mechanism then? You know, what, what next if he actually cannot go on from now? And no one really had an answer. So, so again, I think, you know, he is someone who can probably keep going for as long as he wants to. I'm not convinced that will be, you know, for very, very, very long. But but again, there's no further mechanism. Like, sure, you know, Graham Brady, I think, has hinted before at the fact that the 1922 committee could change the rules. So if, if Tory MPs really want to have another confidence vote, they could, you know, sort of like and not have to wait for a year. But apart from that, you know, th- th- there's not much to do, really. Rory Stewart was tweeting immediately afterwards, uh, pointing out that you re- if you remove the payroll vote and you look at the free vote from backbenchers, almost 75% of all Tory MPs who did not dependent on his patronage voted against him. This is the end for Boris Johnson, he said. I mean, obviously, what makes something uh, into the end for a politician is enough of a consensus in, in, in commentary exactly like that. In which direction do you see the commentary moving? I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, I'd... I'd, I'd... Don't want to be a dick on this. But, oh, my God, stop the press. Rory Stewart does not (laughs) like Boris Johnson. My God, my God. You know, I've I've just fainted. I'm going to have to come back up. Give me some smelling salts. But Mm. um, I I, I don't really know. I don't, hmm. We'll see. Because I think that the slight thing is that, you know, the press has become so divided over him anyway. So I think, you know, it's all lies on basically the Daily Telegraph and the Daily Mail. Um, at the moment, because as it stands, I think, again, you know, we've got a press that's you know, n- not unlike Brexit, I think, where people are so entrenched on their side that I don't really see anyone, you know, kind of like changing. And I I can see that, you know, and I, I may be proved wrong, but I can definitely see some of that very sort of fighty Daily Mail and Daily Telegraph um, front pages coming out overnight and saying, oh, actually, you know, shut, you know, put up and shut up and whatever, and you know, like keep following the great leader and so on. So, so I'm not. I'm not sure the commentary will change massively. You know, what was it like Hugo Rifkind? I believe um, wrote a really, really good column a few weeks ago on Boris, actually, which I thought was absolutely brilliant. Kind of describing the despair of both people in Westminster and Conservative MPs and the nation at the Boris Premiership. And guess what? It changed absolutely nothing. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure there's going to be a massive win of change on that front, at least so far. One of the sort of significant things that emitted from the 1922 committee meeting room was Johnson, you know, asked about the partying and the and the the, the drinking culture, and saying, "I'd do it again." And that sort of, to me, had the ring of something that could would, would come back to haunt him. The idea that all the stuff about being humble and contrite, and I've learnt lessons, is obvious bullshit. He's contrite for as long as it takes to get out of the headmaster's study. I think it might have been Steve Baker who said that. Is that the kind of phrase, you know, I, after all the stuff that's been exposed, to, to say, I'd do it again? Is that the kind of thing that 
can be hung around someone's neck. But Or again, does it require personal shame for it to mean anything? So I think that one's a bit of a weird one, right? Because I feel like, you know, mm. I, I saw it and I got, and it was one of those weird moments, right? Because I saw the tweet from Patrick Maguire. Um, and, and I remember thinking, oh God, you know, I can actually remember the last time I'd really had it in me to become properly angry at something Boris Johnson had said. Um, and yeah, and that was the first time in a long time I really felt the sort of, you know, fury in my soul. Uh, mm. But that being said, you know, I, I've seen some stuff since that said actually there was a slight misquote and actually he'd been asked about thanking the staff in number 10 or something. So there may have been a, a slight mischievous misquote on that one. But but that being said, you know, I think it, it, it's out now and I can see the Labour leaflets, you know, coming out tomorrow, hot off the press with exactly that quote. So I think, you know, that's certainly... And, and again, I think the problem is even if it's a slight misquote, if you're Prime Minister and you've been in politics for that long, you should be acutely aware you know, of what you say and how you say it and how it may be misinterpreted and how it may be used by the opposition and stuff. So even if it was a slight sort of, you know, misquote, my sympathy, I would say, for Boris Johnson, for a politician like him, (laughs) is limited, I would say. We're not going to have you on if you've got to keep being fair to him, Marie. That's not what the people want. (laughs) Justin, uh, he looked pretty shirty on his BBC interview uh, after the vote, didn't he? He did. He was on there just before we went on air and it was... He wasn't presented with any questions that were particularly hard or, you know, particularly sort of probing. They just kept coming back to the same points of essentially, you know, what does this arithmetic now do to you as a leader and what is the way forward? And there were a couple of moments where he tried the usual sort of rhetorical bluster and it really just felt like, you know, errant dad who's let you down a hundred times before telling you you know this time is going to be different and he will turn up and just the same it was just the same sort of like lines and catchphrases you know we're building back better we're doing this with the police unemployment rates are here and you just have kept second around going well that's not what you're being asked about Mm. none of that is is the issue you know there is the enormous elephant in the room is that you know a vast part of your party and you know a huge amount if you go by the backbench numbers has just publicly you know essentially tried to eviscerate you yeah i mean just banging on about politics and policy seems odd when it's that's not as you say that's not the question that's being asked the question it's a question of his personal honesty and you know he's clearly wounded and certain mps are clearly thinking better do it quick or he's just going to spend the next six months to a year bleeding out all over us but can we at least enjoy the schadenfreude? I mean, I saw Nick Watt of Newsnight tweeting, some very long faces on supporters of Boris Johnson after poll closed. One prime, minister, uh, one prime ministerial ally said of Tory MPs, they are a bunch of lying snakes. I don't trust anything they say. Well, where did they learn that from? I mean, it's... Do you know, I, I feel conflicted about this because on the one hand, I'm like, yes, there's obviously a dimension in which all of this is absolutely glorious. You know, it is, you know, it's been a long time coming and I hope the downfall for Johnson is prolonged and humiliating and drums him out of public life. It probably won't, but, you know, we can we can take the wins. On a more serious side, I think there is an enormous issue underneath all of that. This, is, this has all come about because it's not just about, you know, policy direction or a difference of opinion in what the program is for how the country should be run or decisions that should be taken at an enormously difficult time. It is a bigger issue that there is a total policy vacuum. You know, all political parties in a first past the system are somewhat unwieldy coalitions. But the Tories now just seem to be pulling in so many different directions at once. Is it low tax or is it levelling up? Is it best for business or hard Brexit? And it's tried to ride these multiple horses at the same time with this sole unifying aspect of its program being cultural. Yeah, this sort of small-minded, retrogressive, reactionary sense of 
thin-skinned entitlement, which is personified in people like Patel and Doris and Steve Baker. And you think, you know, yes, I'm clearly going to enjoy Boris Johnson just having his bollocks kicked off him. Like, <laughs> who wouldn't? But, you know, this is at a time when the country desperately needs a programme of forward-looking policies, and it has what? Privatised Channel 4 and ship asylum seekers to Rwanda. Because the, the entire political energy, in the way that the political energy was sucked up for two years by can we make this insane idea of Brexit work? How do we do it? The entire political atmosphere in the room is now being sucked up by how do we keep this fat slug in a job? And mm-hmm. it's just, it's disastrous for the country. So, you know, I'm sort of, sort of torn tonight between going, look, from a Labour point of view, I, you know, you've got to say this was a, a probably a good result. You know, he's just going to be in there like this bed blocker, sort of just clogging the place up and making sure not much gets done. From the country's point of view, it's just more of the same and it's absolutely disastrous. Marie, before we move on, the next hurdle is there's two by-elections coming up on June 23rd when normal people will be at Glastonbury. Wakefield, Labour look like they might win that one. Tiverton and Honison, a.k.a. Tractor Porn West, uh, <laughs> which the Lib Dems will probably take. Um, Johnson might not have lost in heavy quotes tonight, but he's got to get through these. What are you foreseeing over the next couple of months? Because it doesn't look like it's going to get any better for him. I'm not sure. I mean, it's hard to come up with any type of analysis right now that doesn't sound a bit trite. But so I suspect there will be a reshuffle at some point quite soon. I think the question is, does it come before the by-elections or after the by-elections? Because I think, you know, everyone, everyone loves a reshuffle, right? And especially, I mean, especially Conservative MPs, but I think even in terms of the press, I think the press loves um, a reshuffle as well. So I think that that's the only card really at this stage number 10 has left to play. So I think that, that you know, busy. They should be clever about playing it, can they? I'm not convinced, but yeah, I mean, it does look like they will. They will lose the two by elections. That that's what's been, I think, quite interesting about uh, this confidence vote. You know, which shows busy that really it was not planned. It was not a kind of whipped operation by some you know shadow group or whatever. It was just a lot of people being fed up because actually a much better timing would have been after the by elections and giving just about enough time for leadership contest before the summer recess begins. But yes, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm yeah, I, I'm not inclined. I think to really make any predictions. I will say that if he makes it to summer recess somehow, he will probably have bought quite a bit of time because there's not going to be anything over the summer. And then obviously, you come, you know, Parliament really comes back for about ten days, then leaves again. Then there's conference season, and then actually the run up to Christmas is weirdly short. So I think if he survives until the end of July, he's probably fine for a while. But it, it, it certainly is the sort of you know danger zone he's entering now. On that reshuffle thing, I read a bright young commentator saying that uh, it's going to be a case of thank you so much for uh, supporting me <laughs> in the no confidence vote. You're all sacked. Who was that bright young commentator? Uh, I believe it was me. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, no, no, but so I did have that thing. And I thought, I mean, it, so, so you know, occasionally when you have a sort of opinion and you're like, and no one else has had it, and you're like, I can't tell if that's because, you know, I'm, I'm being very good and very clever or because it's actually a very stupid opinion. <laughs> Um, but no, so I was really struck today, obviously, you know, absolutely glued to Twitter, where so much of the briefing from number 10 coming out was saying, oh, well, you know, they're kind of offering jobs to everyone, there's going to be a big reshuffle, and all the backbenchers who back the Prime Minister will get jobs in government. Um, and yeah, and I was really struck by that, because I was like, okay, but as we know, for a fact, there are quite a lot of people on the payroll right now, who are feeling quite ambivalent about Boris Johnson at all, you know, all, all levels of kind of, you know, from PPSs to people in Cabinet. And surely, if you're one of those people and you're looking at that, you're like, okay, hang on, 
you know, it, it is very much one in, one out on the front bench by definition. So if they keep promising this absolutely sort of, you know, massive, gigantic reshuffle, who's going to leave to make space? And yeah, and, and you know, obviously, I'm, it, it was a secret ballot, so we'll never quite know, I think, for certain who voted for and against. But yeah, but that kind of struck me as a bit of a losing game after a while, just saying, oh, you know, again, a, a weird stage whisper of saying, oh, you know, don't worry, all the losers on the front bench will get rid of soon. It's like, you guys know they can hear you, right? (laughs) (laughs) Now, the war in Ukraine is over 100 days old and there are disturbing signs that it might be turning in favour of Russia achieving its new limited war aims. The cities of Severodonetsk and Lysychansk are being levelled, according to local governors and cracks are appearing in European unity against the war, according to the Estonian Premier Kaja Kalas. We are at a point where sanctions start to damage our side, she said. At first, the sanctions were only difficult for Russia, but now we are coming to a point when the sanctions are painful for our own countries. And now the question is, how much pain are we willing to endure? Joining me to discuss the latest developments is Ukraine-based journalist and host of the Ukraine Without Hype podcast, Romeo Kokriatsky. Romeo, hello, how are you doing? Hi, thanks for having me on. I'm doing... Uh, as well as I can be under these circumstances. Where exactly are you? Whereabouts are you in, in Ukraine, roughly? I'm in Vinyatsa, which is a provincial town about 150 or so kilometers uh, southwest of Kiev. What is the sense of the way the war is going, where you are? Vinyatsa is basically untouched by the war. Uh, it's been a safe city basically since the very beginning. So there's no hard sense of how things are going here Shops have reopened, restaurants have reopened, everyone's outside, it's summer, everyone's enjoying the, the summer weather. But overall, I would say unlike maybe the view from Europe, uh, the mood in Ukraine is still very much set on victory. What are you hearing from things that are sort of closer to the actual areas of fighting? Is there kind of optimism amongst, your, amongst the Ukrainian people on this? Well, there's a couple of different things you hear because obviously nothing is monolithic. I have a couple of friends and family members, uh, the fighting in the armed forces, And what they tell me is that the situation is incredibly difficult. And that's what we're hearing from uh, the regional government uh, governors of Luhansk and the regional government of Donetsk is that the situation there is difficult, but it's not unwinnable, especially in Severodonetsk. The news there has been has taken a rather positive turn in the last day or day and a half with the armed forces reporting that they have managed to regain control of more than half of the town. Yes, uh, the infrastructure and the buildings there are being leveled, but the Russians' offensive um, to cut off all of Luhansk uh, Oblast, uh, Luhansk province, from resupply from mainland Ukraine, basically, has failed. They have not been able to, to cut that off. We just saw uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky visit uh, Lysychansk, <laughs> through a road that is well within Russian artillery range. So agree with this politics or not, you have to admire the bravery of the man. So I wouldn't say it's all lost. And if the head of state feels confident enough to brave that road and head out to visit the front lines, I think that says a lot about the situation there. We're sort of kind of aware here that you know Russia has vastly limited its war aims to this, this idea of taking the Donbass cutting Ukraine off from the sea and and attempting to kind of choke the country in that way. Do you see this having any more prospect of success than the initial kind of belief that the Russians could knock out Kiev and everything would simply fall? I don't think that 
even these limited aims are really achievable for Putin. Honestly, I don't think any of Putin's aims are achievable for Putin from day one, regardless of how large or, or small they are, simply because, to be quite frank, he's shown his cards. He's shown that the world's quote-unquote second largest army is a paper, tar- a paper tiger and is really incapable of even taking minor Ukrainian cities. Uh, and Ukraine is a second world country at best. So I, I don't really see that happening. And not to mention that the public mood, you know, Ukraine, unlike Russia, is a democracy. And our government has to respond to our desires, regardless of whatever Zelensky or any other politician wants. He has to re- respond to the mood of the people. And people are not willing to give Putin any kind of ground or give Putin any kind of concessions, no matter how small. Uh, not after everything he's done. What about this question of Western support going soft then? Because I mean, talk about how sanctions may no longer be affecting Russia and in fact maybe actually driving up the value of Russian gas and oil. What does it look like again from where you are? Does it look like the West is, is maintaining that sort of steadfastness that we saw in the early days of the war? I wouldn't say that... It seems like the West has gotten less support. I would say certain countries, certain Western countries, have been revealed to be very wavery in their support, rather. The United States, as you know, passed Lend-Lease. They passed a $40 billion aid bill. Biden authorized another $700 million in aid. We're getting um, guns and ammo from the U.S. every day. The U.K. authorized uh, just today M270 howitzers for Ukraine, along with the ammo, Spain has said that the, it is going to qualitatively step up its support. So a lot of Western countries are um, supporting Ukraine just as strongly or even more than at the beginning. However, some countries, particularly Germany, I would say almost um, specifically Germany, has shown itself to be incredibly hesitant on the idea of a victorious Ukraine and how much of that is due to German institutionality. It takes a long time for the Germans to kind of get their bureaucracy moving in any decent fashion. And how much of that is down to simple intransience by um, the ruling party in Germany is hard to say. I'm not a German political expert, an Ukrainian political expert. So I can't really... um, mull on that. Obviously, no one in Ukraine is is feeling very, let's say, generous towards Germany at the moment. But at the same time, we do see that a lot of countries are continuing to support us more or less unconditionally. Even France, where we saw their president, Macron, keep reaching out to Russia for some kind of peace talks or or with some sort of olive branch, France still continues to send weapons and ammunition to us, despite Macron's rhetoric. So a a lot of it is simply politicians politicking, I guess. But Germany in particular is the main country that has shown itself to be sort of unwilling to fully embrace the defense of the really only post-Soviet democracy in Europe. President Zelensky was keen to uh, loudly condemn the idea that Ukraine should cede any territory at all in order to bring this to an end. As you were saying, you know, that's uh, in no way um, supported anywhere in, in, in Ukraine. Is there any way this can end other than in a, in a military victory, though? Is there a, a, some form of a negotiated conclusion? 
will that simply you know leave Putin in place and uh, merely postpone the next phase of a war that actually began in 2014? No, like I, I've said um, before, there is no diplomatic solution to this war. Well, there is a diplomatic solution. That diplomatic solution is uh, the Russian Federation remove all its troops from the territory of Ukraine and its rulers turn themselves over to the Hague for prosecution for crimes against humanity. However, that is incredibly unlikely to happen. Um, As a result, the only way this ends is when the Russian military can no longer conduct combat operations in Ukraine. That's it. That's the only way way it ends for us. That's the only way it ends for Putin, because no matter what he says, Russia has shown itself um, under the Putin regime to be not just unreliable, but untrustworthy uh, in any sense. Uh, You can recall any number of promises that he made to Macron um, near the start of the war about opening humanitarian corridors, which never came to fruition, prisoner exchanges that went nowhere. Uh, You simply cannot trust the Russians to adhere to any principles whatsoever. So even if the Ukrainian people were willing to go to some kind of diplomatic solution here, and even if the Russians played up the pretense of wanting to do so as well, whatever they write down on paper isn't going to be worth the paper that was used to print it. You simply cannot trust that they will do anything they said, and they have proven that time and time again. Putin thought he was going to have a fast war. He thought it was going to be a quick drive to Kiev and uh, over within a matter of weeks. It's clearly going to be quite a long one now. The Ukrainian people, are they prepared for a war that might last for years? That's a really difficult question. Um, It's something I've been struggling with personally over um, the last couple of weeks, as it's become clear that this is not a war that's going to end anytime soon. Someone in on the general staff speculated that it might last till the end of the year. Personally, I think a war like this may stretch out for one or two years, um, possibly, depending on the support we get. Are people prepared for that? <laughs> I have no way of telling, because me, like the grand majority of Ukrainians, we've never been (laughs) in um, this kind of full-scale war before. So I I think only time will tell. So far, people's spirits are up. Ukrainian support for the armed forces has not wavered. Um, The recruitment offices are still full. So for now, it seems that people are, are ready to fight for as long as it takes. But will that still be true in six months, nine months down the road? It's hard to say. Um, Ukraine has been one of the very few things that Boris Johnson is perceived to have done well on. By the time people hear our interview, he may actually be himself fatally wounded as a, as, as a leader. What would the absence of Boris Johnson mean for Ukraine? I mean, to, to us, it's like Gorbachev, loved abroad, hated at home. Yeah, that seems to be um, a, a bit of the sentiment <laughs> here as well. Um, a lot of my friends who are more in tune with Western political developments always find it quite amusing that Johnson gets a warm reception here. And, you know, not to give anything to Boris Johnson, God knows I have my criticisms of the man, but he has uh, directed his government to give Ukraine a lot of support. Whether that's due to his own domestic political aims, he wants to show that he's a wartime leader, whatever. Honestly, I don't care as long as the guns keep flowing. My hope is, of course, that if he is replaced by another PM, that they will see the value in continuing that policy. Uh, And I think the UK as a whole does see the value of um, defending Ukraine and helping Ukraine defend itself. 
Is there anything specific that you think listeners can be doing, people listening to this podcast? Honestly, continue supporting Ukraine and continue keeping us at the forefront of your thoughts. One of the more worrying things that I've seen, especially in, in the last few weeks, is the kind of drop in interest in this war as it's kind of grinding into this back and forth phase. And I think that is incredibly dangerous because politicians, once they notice that their people are no longer paying that much attention to Ukraine, well, they can instruct their governments to pay less attention to Ukraine. That means less money, less arms, less diplomatic backing. Uh, all very bad things if you want Ukraine to win. So if you are a listener to this podcast and you do care about seeing, you know, a <laughs> democracy defend itself against a fascist invader, then I would really hope that you continue to to tweet and to think and to talk about Ukraine as long as it takes, because we're not going anywhere. We can't turn the war off. We can't drop out of it. We're here stuck with it every single day. It drags on. Um, so I can only ask that people abroad who support Ukraine think of us the same way. Well, we like democracies and we don't like fascists. So, yes, we are on with you. Romeo, thank you so much for talking to us. I know you're in a relatively peaceful part of the country, but we hope that you and all of your family and friends stay safe. And fingers crossed. Thank you very much. Finally, monarchy in the UK. It seems like a thousand years ago now, but the Jubilee weekend dug up all kinds of strange and conflicting currents in the British psyche, or rather the various differing psyches of England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. As people basked in the four-day weekend, it wasn't just a chance to see what was effectively the Queen's big farewell performance, and also Buckingham Palace's vision of what it thinks the continuity of the monarchy will look like. Even if you tried to ignore it, it was a moment to think about where Britain is and where it's going. And by coincidence, in the same week, YouGov released a poll asking what were the best things about Britain today. People could choose from five options. At the top, 62% of them chose the NHS. The countryside came second on 61% and only 34% chose the monarchy, which came in fourth place. So, is Britain quite the monarchistic monolith that the Daily Mail might have us believe. What do we really love about this country? Times radio host and former Labour spin Dr Aisha Hazarika now joins us. Hi Aisha, how are you doing? Hello, hello. Happy Platy Jubes. Well, it's Platy Jubes Boxing Day. Are you all jubes out? <laughs> I have. I've had a lot of cheese and bailies. It's been amazing. Yeah, because you, you were part of this kind of jubilee party on the Jeremy Fine show. Give us the, um, the sensation of being there in the, in the beating heart of real Britain. It was actually really, really good fun. I think they did a, a, a great job of getting like some brilliant, weird and wonderful guests, but they had a good fusion of sort of, you know, older sort of more traditional uh, sort of monarchy people and then new modern Britain. But the weirdest moment was that they had a queen lookalike who looks exactly like the queen. And I was in the makeup room and someone came rushing through and went, the queen needs some lipstick immediately. And we were like, what? And then we like popped our head out the door. And we literally almost had a heart attack because we saw this woman that looked just like the queen. We all like almost were like, what the hell is going on? But it was great. It was really good. And I think, I mean, I was I was a bit unsure about because I do I am quite a fan of the the Queen herself, but I'm not a big fan of like enforced fun. But I did have quite a good time at that party, I have to say. I want to find out what's your position on the monarchy as distinct from the Queen. I mean, are you one of these uh, rebellious Scots that she's going to crush in that verse of the, the national anthem that we're not supposed to sing anymore? Where do you stand on the monarchy as opposed to Air Madge? I'm I'm definitely more fond of her match than I am of the monarchy but I think the monarchy is a, a it is just part of of British life and I think to sort of get rid of it 
I don't think to me that feels the right thing to do. I think a much more modern and slimmed down version of the monarchy is what is needed. And to be fair, what is coming down the the track. And I think when the Queen does pass and we have a new king and we are going to have kings for the for this foreseeable future, things are going to have to change. I don't think people will have that sort of unquestioning deferential just affection for the, for the royal family. And we're, all, we're already sort of seeing it. One of the things I was quite conscious of as well is that where I am down in, in Brixton right now, there was some activity, but I do think with a lot of black and Asian communities, particularly the younger generation, when we're living in a post-Windrush generation, when people see how Meghan Markle was treated, I just don't think there is that absolute love amongst a younger more diverse Britain for the institution of the monarchy. Yes, a lot of affection for, for the Queen uh, as a figure. So, and we saw from the Caribbean trip that w- where that was so tonally wrong on so many levels. I do think things will have to change. The monarchy will have to change. Is it anything more than just a, a, the Queen having to sit through Queen and Mabel and music that she doesn't really like? Does it move the dial? Does it change people's opinions or does it sort of bring them back in touch with the opinions they already held? I think what it probably did was whether you were a passionate lover of the royal family or you were an ardent Republican, I think just having that reminder of her place in history and her unique place in history, you know, having been this golden thread from Churchill right through to the sort of horror show we have today, I think that that did I think, solidify people's unique affection for her as an individual. I also do think, given that we have lived through these very, very divisive times where everything is reduced to some kind of tribal culture war, I think it was probably quite good for the collective soul just to see the country coming together and having a bit of a nice time and all kind of agreeing on something for once for kind of a rare weekend. So I think from that point of view, it's probably been quite good for the soul. But I think what there has not been any coverage of, and I'm not saying, you know, just the coverage of all the people who hate the royal family and the Republicans, what there probably hasn't been any acknowledgement of people who couldn't afford to have a really good time this weekend or, you know, loneliness. I was thinking if you're somebody who is suffering from loneliness, as we know, is a big epidemic, it probably was quite a difficult weekend for you as well. If you're, let's say, an older person with no family and no street party to go to or anything like that. Basically, I'm talking about myself here. But, um, you know, I think there's a little bit of a we're all the same. Everybody had exactly the same experience over the Jubilee weekend because that is absolutely not the case. That poll about what people like about Britain, were you surprised at the way it's stacked up? Because obviously the NHS is top. We're not surprised by that. The NHS is almost a kind of religion in this country. But sense of community got only 9%. And the BBC, the arts and culture, which is a lot to unpack, there's a lot going on there, was neck and neck with being an island separate from other countries. They both scored 22%. It's almost as if you found the thing that will absolutely separate off metropolitan media release and out in the countryside, uh, you know, flagging your front garden lot. Were you surprised at the priorities that that poll showed up? Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, it was interesting that the countryside came second. You got the NHS on 62%, the countryside on 62 And it just reminded me that we do, everybody accuses everybody who has an opinion that doesn't go with the government or institutions as being that the liberal metropolitan elite. But actually, everybody does care about the countryside, which is why the whole kind of sewage, you remember the sewage gate was such a huge issue. I think people do care 
about the countryside. The monarchy thing was interesting for me because that came in at 34%. I wasn't hugely surprised by that. I think I'm surprised sort of the queen as a, as a, if I think if the queen had been a separate uh, thing in itself, it probably would have been a bit higher. But I do think people's attitudes towards the monarchy will are changing and will change when we end this, you know, second Elizabethan era. And I do think the fact that a lot of people don't love Charles. I think a lot of people have affection for William and Kate, but they don't really have the kind of none of not nobody has the sort of star power that the Queen has, which she has through her longevity, to be absolutely honest. So I do think if you are somebody who works at the palace, if you are an advisor or a strategist, if you like, they are going to run up against a bit of an existential problem quite soon, which I think they're very conscious of, but they don't quite know how to solve. Justin, what did you make of the celebrations of the weekend? Because, I mean, you, you kind of sometimes feel like we're offered a choice of either being like a mad royalist in a, in a Union Jack hat or the alternative is like sitting on Twitter screaming about the butcher's apron and like, how dare she have a billion pound golden hat? Um, yeah, I was quite into it. I surprised myself in the end. I mean, there were various points where I was channel hopping and alighted at one point on what appeared to be an episode of EastEnders, but with Charles and Camilla being shown around Albert Square and introduced to all of the actors in character. And then there was like a bloke dressed as a medieval archer shooting a burning arrow while Lee John from Imagination was dancing around on an open-top bus. And uh, it felt a bit like yeah. sort of day three of flu when you've overdone it on the cough medicine, slightly, and you're in this sort of weird kind of fever dream that just sort of goes on and on. It's like a contemporary William Blake type of thing where you see everything in a vision and all of English history at the same time and all of it's weird. That whole sort of polarity that you get in this, if you look at it on Twitter, between the sort of, you know, demented flag shagger crowd and the butcher's apron crowd they're both as tedious as each other and you know and neither i think are particularly representative of where the majority of the country is and i thought it was noticeable this time and you know and i said i'm someone i'm basically ambivalent about the royal family i've got no you know no real love for it no real strong feelings about it but this felt relatively benign more like 2012 in spirit and i think crucially it felt as much as it can be at an event like this, politics was largely removed from it. I didn't see any obvious appearances from the likes of, you know, Nigel Farage in a Union Jack waistcoat. There were no obvious, really heavy-handed attempts to co-opt it from Labour. And it felt like the nature of the celebration was open-ended enough that you could basically partake in it as much as you wanted to. And I think there were a lot of touches they included where it felt quite ground up, which I thought was very smart. I thought roping in the foregrounding a lot of key workers, that involvement of the Commonwealth countries, which seem to be very soft-pedaled. And as I said, you know, compared to the trip earlier in the year, it didn't seem horribly paternalistic. It seemed quite low-key. And then, you know, with things like the beacon lighting, there's something there that feels like it reaches back more into a kind of ancient history. You know, there's a bit of sort of pagan energy about that stuff. So I thought, you know, you're never going to get these things completely right, but broadly i thought they aced it you're not going to get jeremy deller and the klf do the platinum jubilee are you although that would be amazing i mean that would be amazing but again for like the five percent of weirdos like us <laughs> <laughs> obviously no jeremy i mean you saw this like i mean the sort of slight tangent with the liam gallagher gig yesterday but i was sort of swathes of twitter sort of like just reveling in the fact that fat white family the support band had come on and played a 15 minute drone and basically ruined the day for everyone and it's just like 
Well, of course people hated it. It's like they're not supposed to be playing at that kind of festival. You know, when people want a big mainstream event, don't start queering the pitch and, you know, like throwing in stuff like that. So, yeah, I think the uh, the Della and KLF type things can be reserved for people like us. But, um, yeah, broadly, I thought they did it well. You mentioned, uh, you know, people not heavy-handedly co-opting it. Uh, K.S. Starler wrote a fairly innocuous Jubilee piece in The Telegraph where he, he sort of made some aside about it. it's your patriotic duty to let your hair down. Not exactly a massively kind of political thing to say, just mm. a bit of a joke. And the rage that ensued, you know, he's, I think partly because The Telegraph wrote a pretty dishonest headline saying Starmer says it's your patriotic duty to celebrate the Jubilee kind of kind of wasn't what he was saying but the, the way this stuff brings out rage surprises me because for me I don't really care about the monarchy one way or another when the Queen goes there has to be a debate about it because it's not a very inspiring cast of characters but maybe the strength of it is that most people don't actually feel that strongly about it either way it's like Mrs Brown's boys you know it's on some people like it you don't have to watch it joking aside there, there is an opening here for Labour in that you've got a ruling party who are systematically trashing every single thing that we regard as the pillars of this country. You know, lying to the Queen, hacking away at Channel 4 and the BBC, attacking the judiciary, underfunding the police, public services. There's a huge space now for Labour to pose that question to the government and just say very explicitly, what is it that you actually like about this country? And Starmer can say that in a way that Jeremy Corbyn, for very obvious reasons, simply could not with any credibility. Marie, France famously solved its monarchy question uh, in a fairly sharp and brutal way. What did you make of the weekend? Were you uh, drinking in the flag craziness? So I did not get involved at all, actually. Like, genuinely not not by design or not by purpose. It's just, it just sort of happened. I just made plans to go to the pub as I normally do on weekends. And, you know, I live in Stockwell in South London, which has quite a heavy Portuguese area. Turns out Portuguese community, neither here nor there about the royal family. So we didn't have much going on in my neighbourhood. Um, but yeah, but I did find it quite interesting because I kind of expected it. And again, you know, I'm not like, I don't hate the royal family or anything, but I was kind of expecting the Jubilee weekend to be a bit overwhelming and claustrophobic. Um, but actually, I would say that, yeah, all, all the bits of South London I went to just felt entirely normal. It was entirely possible to just sort of, you know, live your life as normal if you wanted to. Is it more enjoyable, do you think, if you can kind of, you as a, a French person can look at this from the distance and go, well, whatever they're doing, it's nothing to do with me. I can just watch what's going on. Whereas for us, it's about like what it's saying about us. Who are we? Are we subjects? Are we free citizens? It doesn't take long before it dissolves into this kind of neurosis. <laughs> Um, yes, well, I mean, so I mean, part of me, because obviously I'm half Moroccan and uh, we're a monarchy over there, so I'm not entirely foreign to the kind of idea of being technically a royal subject and having weird thoughts about that. But yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, and that, that's partially why I cover British politics and not French politics as well. Yeah, I saw a few tweets, I think, over the weekend that said, actually, you know what, think what you want by the royal family, but it is just quite nice that in our country, the way we celebrate our monarch is by doing a silly video with a cartoon bear. Actually, of all the ways to do this is probably one of the better ones. And I think that's kind of where I stand, where actually I was like, you know, as, as a slight outsider still, I was like, this is just quite pleasant. Like, not really my thing, but just quite pleasant overall. You can see certain monarchies in the world would regard making the head of state talk to a cartoon bear as a sort of les majeste that would, you know, you would be executed for. 
you know, it's, our monarchy has kind of become this sort of the property of a kind of Middle England, very BBC The One show, kind of light entertainment thing. You can often see the members of the royal family kind of gritting their teeth as they have to go with this. You know, Royal It's a Knockout wasn't actually so weird when you think about it, because <laughs> they are a light entertainment franchise right now. The usual defence of the monarchy is the kind of last ditch one is that, well, you know, the alternative is the head of state is, a, you know, you get a President Blair or a President Piers Morgan or a President Simon Cowell. You get some kind of, you know, celebrity figure and then you have a divisive head of state rather than what we've got at the moment, which is the kind of like the national nan who nobody feels bad about. I mean, as someone who does have a, you know, obviously you've lived in Britain for decades, but France does have a divisive head of state. How do you feel like the contrast between the two? Oh, that's a good question. But I'm not sure, you know, uh, I'm sure Macron would enjoy it if I were to say, I personally see Emmanuel Macron as my king. Uh, but believe it or not, <laughs> you know, I, I do not. So I, I don't. I don't think they're necessarily comparable. And I think that even... You know, if I think technically head of state in this country, the first person who would come to mind would be the prime minister, not the queen necessarily, which I don't know, may be a crime. Who knows? I don't know. So one thing I do find quite interesting, because I think some of the people who did not really shine actually over the Jubilee weekend were the kind of like anti-monarchy people like Republic, I think, being the main campaigning organization where it just felt very odd to see people saying, you know, like, you know, royal family is terrible and kind of, you know, we need to get rid of them entirely, where I would actually be quite interested to see what a campaign looked like could look like that said something along the lines of fine, you know, we can have a royal family, but let's maybe keep an eye out on the dodgiest stuff, on the kind of, you know, all the like private letters that get released decades later showing that members of the royal family, you know, do have an impact on politics, etc. Yeah, I I find it interesting that it's become this sort of either you clearly embrace the royal family in all its forms or you just want a republic, but in a way that is clearly just obviously not going to happen in Britain and there's no kind of middle ground critical movement saying we're not against the idea in general, but, you know, could we maybe give them less power and and again and just lean into the one show thing and let them do that? Well, Nick Cohen wrote a really good thing in The Observer at the weekend about how kind of rather been spoiled by this queen. And when Charles comes in, you'll find out what having a monarch is really all about. You know, that he has been a, a, a track record of interfering, a track record of being, of having, shall we say, idiosyncratic opinions, not generally been a, a, a positive influence in, on, on a lot of areas of policy, when in fact he shouldn't be an influence at all on any any area of policy. So perhaps this is the lesson we're about to learn. I mean, I kind of get the argument and I'm you know, largely persuaded by it that the existence of a royal family and the existence of a monarchy kind of keeps us in this infant stage where we never sort of fully take responsibility for the fact that the head of state ought to be the people. I wanted to ask you, Marie, um, that survey we've been talking about, only 4% of respondents said our political system was the best thing about Britain. And as somebody who's been taught since birth that we've got the, the greatest system in the world, that struck me as really surprising. I mean, I know it's not very popular at the moment, but I wouldn't have thought it'd be quite that bad. What do you think about that? wasn't especially shocked in the sense that because wasn't it a list of about 10 options I think and you could pick five I'm not sure you people just really I was kind of writing something adjacent to that um this morning people just don't care about politics and obviously you know I think we sit here and like, every week or every other week uh, we talk about politics for an hour um etc so I think you know we're kind of removed from that but most people I think just do not think about politics at all so I kind of just saw that as a mark of again reinforcing the idea in the sense that People just do not care that we are in a very, very, very small minority. All right. Before we go, each of you, what is the best thing about Britain? I'm going to start with you, Aisha. It was definitely Boris Johnson getting booed. I did actually think that was a real moment of, you know, the the public do know what they're talking about in this country. 
That was a Ceausescu moment for me. They were shouting Buris, of course, as, as also, we all know. It does remind me of that amazing scene from Blackadder where the the prince goes, um, were they were they saying, you know, I, they, they loved me. They were saying, we hail you, we hail you. And they're like, no, no, so they were saying, we hate you, we hate you. <laughs> Justin Quirk, what is the best thing about Britain? Very obviously, it's Iron Maiden's first four albums. Okay, right. Not everybody's choice, but we'll go with that one. Marie LeCant, what's the best thing about Britain? I was going to say the music and the fashion. Just actually, yeah, be entirely earnest for once. <laughs> music and fashion were always the passion, and you're absolutely correct, because that's probably what I'd go with as well. I mean, it's like the fact that the diversity that didn't rate particularly highly on that survey is best expressed in the culture, in the music. In the, It's in the music, it's in the songs, it's in the TV, it's in the film. That's what it is. And the podcasting. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of this week's bunker, which means it's time for the panel's escape routes. What are the films, books, TV shows, etc., that given our panellists a break from both the bruising world of politics and the bruising world of Platinum Jubilees? Aisha Hazarika, what's your escape route this week? So I've just finished watching Ozark and I'm still not okay. I'm not going to give away any spoilers, but, you know, I have to say, you know, if you're bored of lying and, and corruption and gangs and, and revenge and backstabbing and you're sick of watching the Parliament channel, then I really do <laughs> give, give do watch Ozark. It is amazing, amazing, amazing. The, the finale was really, really shocking. It was amazing, disappointing, thrilling at the same time. But the thing I loved about it, it has got like the most complicated, wicked dark female characters it's brilliant it's so good to see women have those incredibly proper nasty but like rich glorious roles marie lacant you're a shocking strong female character on this podcast what's yours oh god well i I actually can't remember if i mentioned it already or not but i've I've been quite busy recently so i think i'd have to say fraser all right yeah watching fraser for the first time so i'm kind of making my way through it there's like 700,000 episodes so it's you know I'm sure that in two months you'll ask me about my escape route and I'll be like I'm watching Fraser but yeah no really enjoy it turns out you know people were right it's just a very very good sitcom where are you up to what's happened so far uh so I'm still just going through season two all right we're halfway through season three you've got a lot to get through oh god yeah no it's it's, yeah it's really good I've got a weird crush on Niles as well which makes me feel a bit weird but here we are (laughs) Justin how about you what's this week's escape route for you I've been completely immersed in a website called Frantic Planet, which is the blog essay site of a TV writer called Stuart Millard. And it is incredible. It's this really exhaustive, deep dive into the absolute gutter of 90s and noughties TV. Uh, So he's got these huge, extensively footnoted essays on everything from The Big Breakfast, Don't Forget Your Toothbrush, The 11 O'Clock Show. Um, they're a really brilliant reminder of what a strange, weird, ugly decade a lot of that was and how much of the culture already feels like something from a completely different era. But um, yeah, I really, really recommend it. If you just Google uh, Frantic Planet, it's Stuart Millard's very extensive TV reviews. Well, mine is, I know it's been kind of Jubilee week, but uh, if you need another story about a young heir who spends far too long uh, waiting for his turn with terrible, disastrous consequences for, in fact, the entire galaxy, Obi-Wan Kenobi is the one to watch. I thought the first two episodes were a bit slow. The third one is incredible. A particular character comes back. Someone who's been trained for a long time to assume a particular role and then assumes another one. Can you guess who it is? I mean, 
considering this Star Wars thing is rooted in the absolutely terrible Star Wars prequels, it gets so good after about the the, the third episode. And there is a particularly strong character played by Moses Ingram, who is getting all kinds of immensely depressing racist stick on the internet because, of course, the universe can contain um, Jabba the Hutt and it can contain hammer-headed aliens, but it can't contain black women, apparently. This is not allowed. Uh, so all the fans are wetting their nappies about it. Or rather, not all the fans. People who purport to be Star Wars fans and aren't really Star Wars fans are wetting their nappies about it. I think she's brilliant. She's one of the best characters we've seen in the world of Star Wars. And yet again, Disney Plus is going to screw another £10 a month out of me. Obi-Wan Kenobi, heartily recommended. And that is the end of this week's bunker. Thank you, Aisha Hazarika. Thank you very much. Thank you, Marie LeCant. Thanks for having me. And thank you, Justin Quirk. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> we'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily, as usual, and the full-length show this time next week. If you like what we're doing, of course, you can support us on the crowdfunding page Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more about episodes without adverts, merchandise, all that kind of stuff. And, of course, backers get a shout-out on the show, and here are some now. Hello from me and many thanks to David Cottam, Max Knifton and Patrick Roberts. Many thanks from me to Marek Laskowski, Kim Reynolds and Tufty McTavish. And finally, best wishes from me to Nicola Turton, Teresa Clanfield and Morali Surya. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to The Bunker, produced and presented by Andrew Harrison, with Aisha Hazarika, Justin Quirk and Marie LeConte. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yolna Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese, with assistant production by Lena Ganatra. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Mm-hmm.